Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And you know, guys, technology changes pretty darn quickly. And that's just in a normal time. During the pandemic, you've got a lot of other factors that are weighing in that can make things change even faster. And some of the episodes that I have recorded in the last few months have already needed some updates. None of them really need a full episode as an update, however. So today's episode is going to be about a collection of updates on things that I have covered in the past few months since the outbreak of the pandemic. The first episode that I recorded at home was in the series that I did about the history of PlayStation. Uh, The first one was actually PlayStation Part 3, and the second one was PlayStation Part 4. And now, since then, we've had a brand new console, the PS5 debut. It came out on Thursday, November 12th, and I am recording this on Friday the 13th. Also, for some reason, there is a guy in a hockey mask totally getting in my personal space. But we'll just ignore him for now. When I recorded those episodes, we had an announcement about the PS5 and a few details about the console, but that was about it. However, now it's out. It's actually available for people to purchase. Well, Kind of. We'll get to that. And we can talk about some of the specs of the PS5 and how it contrasts with its chief rival, the Xbox Series consoles, uh, particularly the, um, the, the, the Series X, although the Series S is also in play. And I'll be sure to talk about those a little bit as well to give you some updates on, on those. Now, first things first we got to talk about how big this ding-dang-darn thing is. Now, I do not own a PS5 yet. I do plan on getting one eventually, and I also plan on getting a Series X console eventually, but I'm not in a rush to grab them right now, which is probably a good thing. I've seen photos of the PS5, and I thought, Wow, that's really big. Once I had something to compare it to, particularly a photo that had Trish Hirschberger in it. Now, she's a tech journalist. She's an awesome person. I've met her a couple times. Great person. And she shared a photo of herself standing next to a PS5 and said, it's big enough to be considered about half of a Trish. Now, to be fair, Trish is a total Hermia from Midsummer Night's Dream, though she be but little she is fierce. And what I mean to say is that Trish is, um, she's not very tall. The PS5, however, is tall, at least as far as consoles go. It's 15.4 inches tall, to be precise. That's just shy of 30 centimeters. It's also 10.24 inches deep, or 26 centimeters, And it's 4.09 inches wide, or approximately 10.4 centimeters. Now, that's if you have it standing upright and not down on its side. You can have it either way, uh, depending on your setup. But no matter how you position it, that right there is a chonker. 
It weighs in at 14 pounds, that's about 6.4 kilograms. So part of the early discussion about the PS5 is really just that it's so large that it can actually be a challenge to fit into an entertainment setup, depending upon the size you're working with. Uh, it also has the white wing-like sides and a black center of the console. That's led some people to call it a reverse ice cream sandwich, where you would have the ice cream on the outside and the, the cookie bread in the middle. There are actually two different models of the PS5. One of them has a 4K Blu-ray optical drive, and the other one does not. And the one that does have the drive is the one that's a touch chonkier. That's the one that's the 4.09 inches wide. The digital-only version is slightly more svelte. The Blu-ray drive version costs $499.99, at least that's the, the suggested retail price. And the digital-only PS5 is at $399.99. Um, digital only being digital only delivery. The console is physical. <laughs> but apart from the optical drive, those two systems are the same internally. They have the same processors, same memory, same, same storage, same performance. This is one of the things that sets the two PS5 consoles apart from the two new Xbox consoles. One of the features that got hyped in the lead-up to the PS5 debut was that the system would load games much more quickly than the PS4. And we didn't have very many details about what this would actually mean. I mean, what does more quickly mean? And fortunately, The Verge, uh, whom I referenced a lot for this particular part of the episode, they have a helpful table that breaks down how long it took the PS5 versus the PS4 to load certain titles that are available for both platforms. And that's also a good reminder that early in the lifespan of these next-generation consoles, we're going to see a lot of cross-platform titles that are available either for the previous generation or the more fancy-schmancy new generation of consoles. There will be, and there are, games that are made specifically for the new generation, but a lot of those titles are going to be available both for PS4 and PS5, which makes sense if you're a developer because you want to sell as many copies as you possibly can, and maybe not everybody's going after a brand new console just now. Anyway, on to the load times. To fire up the new game Spider-Man Miles Morales, and I can't wait to play that one, but to fire that up on the PS4 takes about a minute and 27 seconds. But on the PS5, it was just 17 seconds. Yowza. Now that's not to say all loading times will have that dramatic a difference or will be that fast. Death Stranding, which is a game that's been out for a while now, will load up in a minute 50 seconds on the PS4, and the PS5 does it in 54 seconds. So the PS5 is faster, definitely, but not every game is going to load as quickly as the new Spider-Man game does. Moreover, if we see the PS5 follow the same path as most hardware, it will only be a matter of time before game developers release games that tax the loading speed of the PS5, and we'll be back to waiting two minutes or more for certain titles to load up. That's just the nature of hardware and software, and it ties into an observation called Worth's Law. 
Wirth's law states that software is getting slower at a rate that's greater than hardware is getting faster. So the hardware is getting faster, but software is getting slower faster than the hardware is getting faster, if you follow me. Essentially, it's an observation about software bloat and how as software gets more sophisticated, it does not necessarily become more efficient as well. Anyway, another related issue is in storage space. The PS5's solid-state drive is 825 gigabytes, but again, according to The Verge, of that, only 667.2 gigabytes are actually available for storage for games and stuff. The rest of that hard drive space is reserved for system data, or I guess I should say the rest of the solid-state drive space is reserved for that system data. The 667 gigabytes is a lot. That's a lot of storage, no doubt about it. But some recent games that have just come out not too long ago are truly enormous, topping in at more than 100 gigabytes for just one title. And some of them are getting close to 150 gigabytes or more. When you take that into account, the massive amount of storage really means you might only be able to have four or five AAA titles stored on your PS5 and ready to go at any given time. And other times you may have to uninstall games in order to install a new one. So that makes things a little tricky. Now the PS5 does have a slot for additional Sony certified solid state drives to be added in so you can increase your storage, but there's no word yet on when those will actually be available. Reviews of other elements of PS5 performance are a little more modest. Uh, the console can put out 4K resolution graphics with HDR and ray tracing and all that stuff, which is, you know, all about the visual appeal of this device. But these things only matter if, one, you happen to have a television that supports 4K and HDR. If you don't, all that's going to be lost on you. And two, the people who are making the games have to be able to leverage those capabilities. They have to create assets in the game that use these features so that you can, you know, enjoy the benefits of them. So many of the reviews that I have seen uh, say that the games definitely look better, but that the improvements in graphics are fairly subtle. Like the, the jump in graphic quality isn't as great as you have seen in previous generations. And that kind of makes sense to me. We're at a point of diminishing returns when it comes to stuff like graphics and video. There will always be room for improvement, but the jump from one generation to the next is going to be less obvious. Uh, it's not like going from 8-bit graphics to 16-bit graphics, or when we got up to 64-bit graphics. Now the improvements are more polished then they are transformational. This isn't bad, mind you. It just means that the graphics aren't necessarily a showstopper. However, the way the games load and run seems to be spectacular based on the reviews. And on top of that, reviewers have said really good things about the new PS5 controller. In the last PlayStation episode that I did, I said we had yet to see the controller. Now that we have seen it, folks are really digging it. The triggers on the controller have variable tension and haptic feedback built into them. Now that means that a game developer can create situations in which using the triggers feels different, specific to whatever the context is within the game. So for example, 
Imagine you've got a game in which your character has a bow and they are drawing an arrow back with that bow. And the trigger that you're using is linking to that command to draw the arrow back. So as you squeeze the trigger, you feel an initial resistance, which represents the tension on the bowstring. But let's say in another part of the game, you need to use the same trigger to just pick up a small item. And this time, you feel very little resistance as you pull the trigger, which represents how easy that action is within the game to your character. So it's a neat way to add some immersive qualities to a game. You can stress that this thing that you're having your character do is harder for your character to do because you've increased the tension on the control itself. I think that's pretty genius. The controller can also make a lot of different kinds of vibrations. Uh, gone are the simple days of the basic rumble pack. Now the vibrating motors inside the controller can be manipulated to simulate everything from, you know, walking across crunchy leaves to flying through a, a war zone in a helicopter. And I think Sony is in better shape when it comes to exclusive titles for the PS5 compared to Microsoft and their situation with the new Xbox consoles. The pandemic has had an enormous impact on the development cycle for games, and it's also done a serious number on supply chain management. So it's actually pretty impressive that the console and any games are coming out at all. And not surprisingly, it can be a real challenge to find a PS5 or an Xbox right now because supplies were limited due to that impact on production. But let's switch over to the Xbox for just a few moments. And switching is a good thing to start with as one of the features on the new Xbox Series S and the Series X is the quick resume technology. So say you're playing a game and maybe you hit a spot where you're not making much progress and you're getting frustrated. So you decide you're going to take a break from playing that game and switch to something else. Maybe it's another game, maybe it's a video, but the Series X will suspend your gameplay in the active game as you swap over to your other task. And then you, let's say you load up a second game and you're playing that. Then you decide, you know what? I want to go back to my original game. So you back out to your little splash menu and you swap back over to the original game you were playing and boom, you're right back in it and it's super fast. The Series X and Series S are effectively putting their fingers on a page in a book for you. So you can just flip right back to that page without any real delay. You don't have to wait for the game to load back up into the system's memory. It's pretty impressive to see. And what's going on is that your game state from game number one is sort of flash frozen into storage memory on the Xbox. And this memory is really handy to the Xbox processor. So when you swap back to the game, the processor can just fetch the game state from memory rather than having to root around in the solid state drive for that information. As a feature, I think it falls under the, the quality of life category. It's not transformational, but it's really nice to have. Uh, the quick resume feature can accommodate between four and six games, depending on how complex those games are. One big selling point for the Xbox, something that has been important since the very beginning, is backwards compatibility. 
Sony has had a kind of spotty past when it comes to supporting games from older consoles. The company has made more dramatic departures from older system architecture, which makes it harder to adapt older games to later systems. The PS3 in particular was a real challenge because the microprocessor architecture, while powerful, was very different from earlier PS state uh, systems. So the Xbox follows a philosophy that's much closer to what we see with PC games, which really should surprise nobody. And one of the attractions of the Series X and Series S consoles is that you can play older games on those systems and you'll end up getting an enhanced upscaled experience in the process. So you can pull up a real classic game, like, I don't know, Crimson Skies, I hope, and it should look pretty good. It's not going to magically, you know, convert up to 4K resolution. It doesn't, it's not going to measure up to the level of graphics you would see with a brand new game release, but it'll look better than it would on the old original Xbox, in theory, anyway. I haven't actually tested this out because I don't have an Xbox yet. I just really like that game. You know, Crimson Skies is an awesome game and I really want to play it again. Remake Crimson Skies, Xbox. Go and go and make an uh, you know a new current generation version of Crimson Skies. That game is amazing. Now I alluded to it earlier, and I've talked about it in other episodes. But Microsoft has taken a different approach than Sony has with the two tiers of Xbox consoles. So the Xbox Series X is the one that has the optical drive, and it costs four hundred ninety nine dollars just like Sony's top-level PS5. But it also is a more advanced machine than the digital-only Series S is. The Series X has more data storage, it's got a faster processor, it can support 4K gaming, Uh, the Series S is limited to 1440p resolution for gaming. So while the two models of the PS5 are identical, except for one of them has an optical drive, the Series X is better future-proofed than the Series S is. On the other hand, the Series S comes in at $299, which makes it $100 cheaper than the least expensive PS5, the one that doesn't have an optical drive. Uh, Also, the Series S and the Series X have a one terabyte storage expansion slot where you can purchase uh, an extra SSD of a terabyte and plug it into the back and thus more than double the amount of storage in your Xbox. I think Microsoft is going to struggle a little bit on the game front, at least for new games, because many titles that were meant to debut along with the console have since been delayed by at least a few months. And again, that's largely the pandemic having an effect in addition to the normal issues we see with game development where there can be delays. But Microsoft also has... Game Pass, which is a subscription-based service that gives players access to more than 100 titles if they subscribe to it. So rather than buying games, you subscribe to the service and that gives you access to these games. And you can play stuff that maybe you overlooked or maybe you never had the cash to buy that particular title back in the day. And a lot of game journalists refer to it as the best deal in gaming. And it's kind of hard to argue with that. So let's say that I, Jonathan Strickland, have recently upgraded my television because honestly, the one I have right now is an outdated regular old HD TV. It's not even a smart TV. This HD TV is from several years ago, works just fine, so I've never replaced it. 
But let's say that I go ahead and I upgrade. Now I've got a decision to make. Do I go with the PS5 or do I go with the Xbox? This is legit a tough question for me because uh, for one thing, I'm, I'm an Xbox diehard fan, but I don't, you know, I don't immediately fall into a camp of Xbox good, PS5 bad. The new games for the PS5 look insanely good, Spider-Man in particular, and Microsoft looks to lag behind a little bit due to those production delays. On the other hand, the Game Pass deal is fantastic, and I'm already a subscriber, but by that same logic, I could just continue to access Game Pass on my Xbox One and then wait around a little bit longer to upgrade to a series console. In fact, I would probably do that even if I had the brand new fancy television. I would probably get the PS5 to start off and have a goal to get a Series X later in the future. Now, that's a moot point for me because I do not currently have a 4K TV, so a lot of these enhancements would not matter. I wouldn't be able to see them because my television wouldn't be able to show them. And also, I don't have a whole lot of time to play a lot of stuff right now. That's just a bummer. Uh, But when we come back... I'm going to talk about something else that needs to be updated, a video streaming service that I covered during the pandemic that ain't round here no more. But first, let's take a quick break. On August 17th, 2020, which feels like a million years ago, I know everyone says that, but man, it feels like this year has just lasted forever. Well, anyway, on August 17th, I published an episode about Quibi, the streaming video platform that had been in development for a couple of years and had some big names in technology and entertainment behind it. And that episode is called Quibi Quibble, if you want to check it out. I talked about how the original concept for Quibi, which would feature short form videos that lasted about 10 minutes each, was intended to go after a market of folks mostly young folks, who are looking to pass the time while waiting to do other stuff. Like maybe they're on a train or they're waiting in line for a coffee or whatever. And how the pandemic was eliminating the very use case that Quibi was based off of. And I concluded with some skepticism about the long-term viability of the platform, which I didn't think was particularly promising. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since the announcement in late October But Quibi is, sadly, officially shutting down. And I hate that I was right to be skeptical. And let's be fair, it was the only reasonable point of view to take given the circumstances, so I'm not really giving myself any credit here. It's like looking at the ocean and saying, I bet it's wet in there. It was kind of obvious on the face of it. I take no pleasure in the failure because I think Quibi was giving a lot of really creative people an opportunity to do what they love to do and seeing something like that go away just stinks. But at the same time, I think the decision to pull the plug was the most responsible thing to do. So we're going to take a look at the short span of time from August to October to see what happened. Now, let me give a super quick recap of Quibi. I already mentioned the use case for the platform, the short-form videos of about 10 minutes in length. Some projects, like some of the videos on Quibi, were uh, a lot like a television series, with each episode being 10 minutes, right? A 10-minute episode. But some were more like feature films that got divided up into 10-minute chapters, which presents a challenge when crafting a story, but we'll get to that. 
Some were fiction, some were in the reality TV space, some fell into the category of news or coverage of stuff like sports or lifestyle. It was a pretty broad approach to entertainment as a whole, just that it was all in a bite-sized form factor, and the guiding logic was that people are using their phones to watch stuff more than ever, and frequently do so to fill up time where they normally would be doing nothing or at least nothing much. Quibi was meant to tap into the psyche of the TikTok fan base, or Snapchat, platforms that excel in the presentation of short-form video clips. But Quibi would marry that with the original programming and high production value that you find in services like Netflix. So yeah, kind of bringing together the Netflix model and putting that with the TikTok model, though the videos on Quibi were really, on the whole, much longer than anything you would have ever seen on TikTok. On top of that, the service had a mobile-specific feature that many saw as nothing more than really a gimmick, and some folks just outright hated it, and it was called Turnstyle, and it let you switch between portrait viewing and landscape viewing on a mobile device, and all the content would be produced with this in mind so that you would get a full-frame presentation in either format. In other words, you wouldn't get black bars on top and below the video when you switched it over to portrait. It would become a portrait view, and it would be designed in such a way where, theoretically at least, you weren't missing anything important. But you have to remember that in portrait view, it means that you have a narrower view of what's going on. So some stuff that would typically be in frame might not even be on camera. So the service really was going all in on the mobile-centric presentation of video. The two main people at the helm of Quibi were Jeffrey Katzenberg, former Disney and DreamWorks executive, and Meg Whitman, former CEO of Hewlett Packard Enterprises. And in the year leading up to Quibi's launch, they both appeared on stage together at various conferences and events, pitching the service, talking about taking aim at a market that, while I, I wouldn't say was underserved, hadn't been explicitly catered to. I mean, people watch videos on mobile devices all the time, but Quibi was meant to fit neatly into that style of viewing from the get-go. So the thought was, if we make content designed to be watched on mobile devices in short spans at high production value, we will hit that sweet spot for people who are already using their devices to do that, but the content doesn't conform to the use. Quibi launched with a free trial period, after which users would be asked to choose a subscription plan. And there were two available here in the United States. The lower plan was $4.99 a month, and that gave you access to ad-supported videos on Quibi, so you still had ads between videos. For $7.99 a month, you would get the videos, but with no ads. The content was exclusive to the platform, and it was highly produced, like I said. You wouldn't find it anywhere else. But the question was, would the variety and quality of content be enough to convince a large enough subscriber base to make the operation profitable? Producing content is really expensive, whether you're funding it directly or you're negotiating with content creators who fund production in return for a contract with the platform. There was little hope that Quibi would operate at a profit right away, as just the cost of making stuff would mean there would be a growing gap to cover with revenue before it could turn a profit. Now, in my previous episode about Quibi, I talked about how the service was on uncertain ground even back in July, just a couple of months after the service had launched, 
News outlets like The Verge reported that Quibi was losing around 90% of users once the free trial concluded, at least for those users who signed up during the first few days of the app becoming available. Actually, it's a little worse than that. The opening sentence of that Verge article says, Streaming service Quibi only managed to convert a little under 10% of its early wave of users into paying customers, says mobile analytics firm Sensor Tower. So imagine you have 10 people together and you give each of those 10 people a, a slice of your delicious homemade pie. And afterwards you ask any, them, who here wants to buy a pie so you can take it home for your family? And only one of them takes you up on the offer. And even that person's not super jazzed about it. That's not great. And it's way worse when that Apple Pie is actually a streaming video content service with nearly $2 billion of investment behind it. That, uh, that's some Apple Pie. Still, as bad as that sounds, the Verge piece goes on to explain that in the grand scheme of business, this isn't as big of a disaster as it seems like on the face of it. An 8% conversion rate that is, getting 8% of your audience to commit to a paid subscription, isn't the worst, but compared to other services like Disney+, Plus, it was pretty far behind. Disney+, Plus had an 11% conversion rate. So on the face of it, you might even say, well, that doesn't sound like it's that much. I mean, 8% to 11%, what's the big deal? However, it had, uh, you gotta look at the scale. Quibi signed up 910,000 people in the first few days of going live. And that meant that about 72,000 of them converted into subscribers. But Disney Plus, 9.5 million people signed up for a trial for Disney Plus. So it wasn't just that it was a larger percentage of a conversion rate. It was also a much bigger scale. Quibi tried to recover as it became clear that the mobile-centric focus was more of a, a an albatross around the company's neck rather than a selling point. Quibi began to work with set-top box devices to produce apps for them so that people could watch the content of Quibi on their televisions rather than just on their phones or tablets. And at first, the solutions involved services like Apple AirPlay or Google Chromecast to, you know, cast the content of a phone or tablet to a device that's connected to a television. Just before word came out that Quibi was going to shut down, Variety reported that the company had created apps for Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and Google TV slash Android TV. In addition, the company had been in negotiations with Roku to get on there as well, but all that focus on the mobile experience was a real issue for the company. We'll never know if Quibi would have thrived in a world that wasn't hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, I think it still would have faced an uphill battle even without the pandemic, but it is clear that the pandemic really shaped how people were accessing media because most of us just weren't out and about as much and had less of a need to be glued to our mobile devices. Meanwhile, the company spent money on some fairly luxurious digs for a corporate headquarters. Now, arguably, in the business that is show, this is a necessity, as having a cool space is a great way to impress potential content partners and to get them on board. I've seen it happen at iHeart, in fact. So you could argue that this is understandable, but it's also an expense and a pretty hefty one. And in a business where things are not going so hot, it can be something that critics will point to when they discuss bad decisions. 
However, if Quibi had been successful, I'm not sure the nitro cold brew on tap or the sleek glass offices would have merited much discussion. I don't know that anyone would have pointed it out. Perhaps in an act of desperation, Quibi tested out a freemium version of its service in Australia and in New Zealand. So there you could sign up for a free account and you could watch ad-supported Quibi content to your heart's content. You could still sign up for a paid subscription and you could go ad-free as well. Perhaps the company was dipping its toe into the water to see if maybe it could entice enough users to adopt the service if ads were the only revenue-generating avenue for the basic subscription. But it turned out that free just, I guess, wasn't cheap enough for people because the offer did not receive that many takers. And as far as I can tell, Quibi didn't really try it anywhere else. So a little more than six months after it launched and after raising more than $1.75 billion from investors ranging from the Walt Disney Company to J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, to the Chinese megacorporation Alibaba, Katzenberg called an employee meeting to break the bad news. The company was going to shut down. The $350 million of cash on hand would be redistributed to the various investors, which raised questions from content creators about how, or even if, they would be paid for their work. Questions that, as far as I can tell, have not mostly been answered, which is pretty darn rough. Now, depending upon which report you read, the announcement either wasn't a surprise to most employees or it came as a total shock. It seems like there's a bit of a discrepancy there. It's hard for me to imagine it as shocking. Not only was the company facing the challenges I had already mentioned, it was also doing so in an environment where content creation was either screeching to a halt or having to change dramatically to work within the pandemic era. Quibi had spent a lot of money on content production early on. They front-loaded the service with a lot of original programming to attract users. But a service like Quibi needs to generate new content to refresh offerings on a regular basis, and a pandemic just isn't a great time to try and produce studio-quality video content. A lot of people have adjusted to working from home studios, or at least very limited sets and locations, but it is still hard to do, and there's still a risk of someone getting sick, and if someone does get sick, that can shut down an entire production for a couple of weeks. It was a pretty bad scenario, perhaps a, a worst-case one. And maybe it's more accurate to say that people were surprised at the timing of the announcement. Not that it happened, but just that it happened so early. Quibi had just secured apps on those set-top boxes I mentioned earlier, and it had raised an enormous amount of investment money that there was kind of a general belief that would at least be able to stick around a little bit longer to see if perhaps it could make everything work. But Katzenberg made the decision to call it quits in order to avoid losing more investor money. And that was probably a pretty wise decision on his part, because I suspect he will want to launch other businesses in the future, and it would be way easier to do that if he wasn't burning bridges between now and then. Around 200 people lost their jobs as a result of Quibi shutting down. And then there are the various production studios, the content creators, the crews, and all the other people who are impacted because their work was for projects that were based on Quibi. Behind the scenes, there was a lot of turnover at the executive level, with stories leaking that 
Working with Whitman and Katzenberg could be challenging. Katzenberg in particular has a reputation for micromanaging. The service will continue operating until December 1st, when it will then all shut down. And I think it's a shame from multiple perspectives. It is a huge challenge to get something made with real production value if you're a content creator. There just aren't that many opportunities. For every TV show or film that you see, there are hundreds of ideas that never make it. And some of them never even get a chance. Some of them are just never even glanced at. So anytime there is an opportunity for a creative person to realize their vision, I think that's kind of special. And Quibi also created an interesting challenge. It's not necessarily a good challenge, but an interesting one. And that's this. With content divided up into 10-minute videos, you have to structure your story to fit the format. Now, ideally, you would end a video in such a way that people would want to see the next episode or the next segment of your movie. So if you make a movie that's essentially 12 10-minute long videos, that means you've got to craft 11 cliffhangers that lead toward a satisfying conclusion. It becomes the Dan Brown novel of films, and this is really hard to sustain. I think of shows like 24, a television series in which episodes take place in real time over the course of 24 hours. Uh, that is uh, 24 episodes per season, with each se episode lasting one hour. The beginning and the end of a season of 24 tends to be pretty amazing, and the middle tends to be less amazing, as writers are trying to find out ways that they can keep the momentum going from episode to episode in order to get to their conclusion. I imagine the same thing was true for a lot of Quibi creators. Still, this segment is for you, Quibi. We hardly knew ye. In fact, some of us didn't know ye at all. Next, we'll look at a few other stories I talked about after lockdown and how things have changed in just a few months. But first, let's take another quick break. One of the other series of episodes that I tackled while working from home was about Panasonic. And this should be a pretty quick update right here. Panasonic's president at the time of those episodes was a man named Kazuhiro Tsuga, who technically he's still the president right now, but he had the unenviable task of reversing Panasonic's slide into losses under the leadership of the previous president, Fumio Otsubo. Now, word comes that Tsuga plans to step down by June of 2021. His replacement will be Yuki Kusumi. Kusumi, like Tsuga, worked largely in the automotive component division of Panasonic. The company also announced that by 2022, it would change the company's structure and convert it into a holding company, with each division within Panasonic operating more as its own separate entity. And the intent here is to make it more clear what the deliverables are for each division within the company, and also to free up leaders to make their decisions more quickly and without any bureaucratic red tape. Now, I also did an episode about TikTok, the video social networking service that I mentioned earlier in this episode when I was talking about Quibi. And when I last left off about TikTok, I mentioned that there was this growing pressure for TikTok to split off from the Chinese parent company ByteDance, and that there were a few American company suitors that were toying with the idea of an acquisition. 
The deadline for severing ties to that parent company in China fell in mid-November 2020, which is, you know, now-ish. In fact, as I record it, that deadline was yesterday, November 12th. Uh, News recently broke that TikTok's deadline has now had a 15-day extension. This was not because of some sort of leniency granted by the U.S. government, but rather because the U.S. government failed to do anything after the deadline passed and then negotiated a new deadline. But to be fair, for those of us not paying attention, the U.S. government has had a few other concerns going on right now, including the aforementioned pandemic and the fallout of the 2020 election. And boy, howdy, is it a fun time to be paying attention to politics. Now, there wasn't so much threat of things changing significantly for TikTok anyway, even if the government had tried to go through with this deadline, because in various court cases, federal judges have decided against the Trump administration and blocked the orders that the administration was was leveling to ban U.S. companies from having transactions with TikTok. In other words, advertisers wouldn't be able to advertise on TikTok's platform, that kind of thing. And those uh, orders were struck down in federal courts. So with those judgments in place, the government really didn't have a whole lot of pressure that it could put on TikTok. So it's kind of like someone saying, you'd better not do that again, or I'll tell you not to do it again. It's hardly an intimidating threat. Meanwhile, China has grown quite hostile to this whole situation, and since any deal would require cooperation between China and U.S. companies and authorities, that presents a big challenge as well. Now, what do I think about all this? Well, I mean, I'm still not a huge TikTok fan from the perspective of personal security and privacy. Uh, I think it's fine for what it's doing, except for that security and privacy side. But that's like all social networking sites, right? TikTok collects a lot of information about users, and that information is going to a company, in this case, a company that happens to be owned by a Chinese parent company. That does cause me a little concern. But then I also feel concern regarding US-owned social networking sites. Do I feel TikTok is more dangerous than, say, Facebook? No, I actually think Facebook is at least as big of a concern as TikTok, and probably a bigger concern from a security and privacy point of view, and and its, its potential to do things like undermine the democratic process. I think Facebook's the bigger threat. But this is all complicated by the fact that the timing of the U.S. government's escalation in opposition to TikTok seemed to fall in line with a big prank that the TikTok community pulled on the Trump campaign staff during the lead-up to the 2020 election. And that has led some people to hypothesize that the U.S. scrutiny is fueled not through some concern for national security, but rather due to vindictiveness. Now, I have no idea what's going on at this point, if I'm being honest. I don't know what the motivations are, really. The whole thing is a big, confusing mess. What I do know is I'm just about fed up with all social networking sites out there. In fact, I got off Facebook, although admittedly, I'm still on Twitter a lot, so I'm not free of it. 
Oh, another story I talked about was Epic Games versus Apple. And here's a quick rundown. Epic Games publishes many games, among them one called Fortnite, which is available on lots of different platforms, including Apple's iOS. Epic has microtransactions within the game. The game itself is free to download, but then microtransactions are how Epic makes money off of it. So players can spend real-world money to buy digital assets to customize their characters in Fortnite. You know, give them specific costumes and dances and that kind of thing. Apple's policy is to take a cut of all transactions that occur within apps that are in the Apple App Store. A 30% cut, in fact. Epic Games decided to try and sidestep this, and it gave iOS players an option to buy in-game currency separately from iOS. So you could get more in-game value for your real-world dollar because there wasn't a markup to compensate for that 30% cut that Apple would have taken otherwise. Then Apple went nuclear on Epic for violating terms of service, and they removed Fortnite from the Apple App Store, and then they said to Epic, hey, anything you guys are working on, we are no longer going to support in iOS. And since that happens to include game engines, like the Unreal game engine, which Epic is responsible for, and since many other game developers rely on that particular game engine to power their own games, this represented a huge problem. So Epic sued Apple for anti-competitive conduct. Apple filed a couple of counterclaims on Epic, saying that Epic was intentionally interfering with Apple's business. Uh, the judge would throw out Apple's counterclaims, saying that Apple was on the losing side of this particular argument. But the story is far from over. However, it did represent a setback for Apple. Also, back in October, a judge found in favor of Epic when it came to the banning of that game engine I mentioned, the Unreal Engine. The judge restrained Apple from removing support for the engine, which was a huge win for Epic. You might even call it an Epic win. But the judge didn't go so far as to grant an injunction against Apple that would have seen Fortnite get returned to the Apple App Store. One judge proposed a trial date for the summer of 2021 to settle the whole thing, but so far both Epic and Apple have indicated that they would really rather have a case where a judge decides the outcome as opposed to a jury trial. So we'll see what happens next. And a couple of other real quick updates uh, on the update on the deepfake story I did. Well, deepfakes didn't really play that much of a role in the lead up to the election in the United States. Uh, there were fears that we would be flooded with fabricated videos, but those proved to largely be unfounded fears. Uh, there was no shortage of misinformation, and there were plenty of misinformation video clips, but these were mostly video clips that were taken out of context. So they were actual video clips of real people, not deepfakes, but they were edited in such a way to make it seem like a person was saying something that they weren't really saying. So we didn't see a big influx of deepfakes, but we were still flooded with lies and misdirection. So yay. Uh, I also did an update on the G4 TV episode I recorded much earlier. And I did a little talk about the network's upcoming resurrection, currently scheduled for 2021. Since that update, there have been a couple of others. There were rumors that Olivia Munn is in talks to potentially return as a host of a G4 TV program. I think that could be great if all parties can find agreeable terms. Uh, G4 has also continued to put out casting calls for new shows, 
including a casting call that was a video that had original G4 TV and, and before that tech TV host Adam Sessler as a character called Crazy Adam, calling for people to come on down and submit applications. I'm certain there are a lot more updates I could probably tackle, but these were the ones that really stood out to me since my office went into lockdown on March 13th, 2020. That also was a Friday the 13th. So I left the office on Friday the 13th and I'm recording this episode on the next Friday the 13th. How about that? Now, I plan on dipping into the archives now and then and giving updates on old Tech Stuff episodes. Some of the episodes that I've done about companies are now a few years old at this point, and those are almost certainly due for an update, at least for the companies that are still around today. But if you guys have any suggestions on episodes that I should follow up on, or even brand new episode ideas, let me hear them. The best place to get in touch with me is over on Twitter. Just tweet at the show. Tech Stuff HSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.